This is week four of our talk on science. We are continuing with the review of the debate between young Earth and old Earth. The thing that I want to make clear tonight is that you're going to see more and more places where the debaters disagree. And I want you to focus on those tonight. Last week when we talked, I told you to focus on the claims that are being made to evaluate them, evaluate who was making them, evaluate the data that supported them. And you guys had some very good observations uh, that are included on the, on the CD from last week as I was listening to it, where you were able to very quickly pick apart some of the fallacies and the arguments that were being made or some of the places where the debaters were being a little bit unfair to one another or that some points just didn't ring true as other points. I want to continue that tonight. But as they start to disagree more and more and as the debate gets a little bit more heated over certain points, I want you to pick out also for me the things that don't make sense to you that they're talking about. Because... They start to talk about a number of things. They bring in a whole host of other things into the debate. And you may not be as familiar with why they're even bringing those up. For example, they start talking about the flood quite a bit. They start talking about plate tectonic theory and, uh, and the concept of was, were all the plates together? Did they move apart? And, and you, may, you may have just studied that in school and thought, you know, that's something interesting, but why are they talking about it in the, in the video? So if those kind of things come up, I'm not sure that I have all the answers, but we can at least address why are they even discussing them, because obviously these two people that are debating bring a big background with them of many other arguments. So we're going to kind of leave it there for right now. Uh, we're going to watch the next segment, see how many weeks it's going to take us to get through this. You guys reserve your comments, and we'll listen to what you guys have to say afterwards. We're talking with uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, who received his Ph.D. in astronomy from the University of Toronto and did postdoctoral research on Quasar at Caltech. And Dr. Kent Hoven, who received his Ph.D. in education, writing his doctoral dissertation on the subject of creation versus evolution. Our topic is, are the universe and the Earth billions of years old or just thousands of years old? Are Genesis 1 and 2 compatible with contemporary scientific evidence? Should they be? And uh, that's a good question, too, but we're going to go down using, using chapter one of Genesis because a lot of folks have uh, kind of discarded this. And I thought, let's have our scientists, uh, let's actually comment on what these verses are talking about. We hit day one last, last time. We're going to talk about day two, Genesis 1, 6 through 8, and says, And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Hugh, what happened on day two? Well, hopefully we agree, agree here. I mean, I see that as a reference to God establishing a stable, abundant water cycle. In fact, one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Robert Newman, who's both an astronomer and a theologian, wrote his master's thesis in theology on that very point. Careful exegesis of the words reveals that it's speaking about God setting up an abundance of water in the atmosphere, the troposphere more correctly, water in the ocean, and you've got a cycling which is going to make possible sufficient water in the future continental land masses. All right. Kurt, Kent? Well, if God set up the water cycle then, why did it say later it had not rained upon the earth? You, what you're saying is, this had it rained upon the earth for millions of years, was there a normal water cycle before? Is this all, in, day, in day two? Definitely. Well, the Bible says very clearly it had not rained no, it upon doesn't. the earth. No, you're, you're quoting from Genesis chapter 2. It says, God, a mist went forth and watered the face of the ground because it had not rained upon the earth. Yeah, but it's in the same context that there is no man, no plant. I mean, it's simply uh, a restatement 
of the initial conditions you've got there in Genesis 1. I mean, what you have in Genesis 2 is a second account of creation with a focus on human beings. The second account of creation focusing on day 6. Yes. All of chapter 2, except for the first four verses, is dealing with what happened in the garden only, and only on day 6. It's not talking about... Um, but you're quoting verses 5 and 6 out of Genesis 2, mm -hmm. and it's simply establishing the context for God creating Adam and placing him in the Garden of Eden and later creating Eve. It how, doesn't how, how give much, you an ordered list. How much later did he create Eve? Was it the same day? Uh, the same sixth day, correct, which, which was a long period of time. Which was a long period of time. Right. Okay, this is where you got to make sure I understand what you really mean sure. by what you say, because I've read enough of your stuff to know how to check that out. The, uh, so you think Adam was there for a long time by himself. You say he had to recover from surgery and uh, had to go to college for a semester and learn. He had to name all the animals. And name all the animals, and that took a long time. He had to work the Garden of Eden, correct. Well, let's, so, let's go back to day three. We're going to get to that, all right, uh, what happened with Adam and Eve, but let's keep it in context because our folks out here are trying to follow. So the fact is basically uh, uh, day two, we had what happen? Water cycle. Water cycle. I disagree. Okay. I think on day two, we had a firmament established, which is clearly later spelled out in Genesis 1.20 as being the place where the birds fly. Genesis 1.20 says the birds fly in the firmament of heaven. So that's the atmosphere. It says there was water above this atmosphere. That's what it says very clearly. And then also in Psalm 148, verse 4, it says there are, there are still waters above the heavens. I suspect God made three heavens. First heaven is the atmosphere where the birds fly. The second heaven is where the stars are. We call it outer space, sun, moon, and stars. The third heaven is where God lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul tells about being caught up to the third heaven. And apparently there was a water barrier between each of those. Uh, the first one is probably now gone. That's what fell down at the flood. I don't know if it was ice or water or moisture or what. But wouldn't it the... fall down immediately? What's well, going to hold it up there? If, if I read your book and it, it, you, you, you make a strong, what's called a straw man argument, you assume that all the water for the flood came from this canopy. Even if some of it just came from the no, canopy, still got a problem. No, there's water from the sky right now. Yeah, but I there's mean... There's plenty of it. Okay. Clouds are water. They float just fine. I don't know so what you held don't it believe up. there's any more water up there before the flood than after the flood? I think there was somehow a canopy of water suspended up there. I can't prove this. This is the canopy any theory. Any different than what we have right now? Oh, probably so. I think that... Then it's it, got to come down. It did come down. It rained 40 days and 40 no, nights. No, it would come down immediately. It wouldn't wait. I mean, the law of gravity is either going to dissipate it to outer space or bring it crashing to the earth. There are plenty. There's plenty of water out there in, in the atmosphere right now. But there's a limit to how much it can hold. I agree. And it was right at that limit. Which Most isn't of very the, much. I don't know that. You don't, you don't either know what it was. Yes, okay. I do. No, I'm you an don't. The Bible says, atmospheric physics. The Bible says very clearly that most of the water for the flood came from inside the earth when the crust of the earth broke open, the fountains of the deep broke open. That's the where the vast aquifers. majority came from. Yeah. And I think we still today have the scars where this happened. They're called fault lines. You know, San Andreas Fault, Hayward Fault, New Madrid Fault. And I've studied all those. None of them are my fault, but I've studied them. And I think that those, the, the flood in the days of Noah happened when this water came out from inside the earth and the canopy collapsed, which is one of the right, explanations. Let me, for let me move you on because you're going to get into it in the day three here as well. Okay. Let's just roll over into it. This is what happened on day three. Uh, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered water, waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. 
The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. We have the receding of the waters of the oceans, seas, and lakes taking place. We have the emergence of land above the seas taking place. Uh, plants and trees come forth at that point. What else do you guys see taking place, and how long was this going on? It took one day, 24 hours. Well, I would see it as taking a much longer period of time. Uh, this like is, how long? Huh? How long? Oh, probably in the order of a few hundred million years. I mean, how, you're going to get these continents forming, right? The, the continents text, we have today? Yeah. No. The continents today are a result of Noah's flood. The shapes, of, the shapes of today's... That's 6,000 miles of plate tectonics in just a few months of time. That is assuming, of course, that today's continents are like they were in the days of Adam and Eve. See, what you've done is you've taken some scriptures that clearly apply to the flood, the worldwide flood in the days of Noah. And, do you, and do say you believe a, that tectonics is operable in the earth? I was just on the San Andreas Fault last week. Yeah, it's moving. Okay. Sure. Uh, That's a result of the flood 4,400 years ago. The plates are still moving. The fountains of the deep broke open. The water came to the surface. They're still settling and shifting. I've climbed 40 volcanoes and taught her science for years. Yes, sir. But Plate if you squish that much tectonics in that brief of a period well, of time... How much tectonics? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to put Africa and South America together? Is that what you're judging this by? Either that or just produce the mountains that are necessary for your flood no. interpretation. In order to make Africa and South America fit for the Pangea theory they put in the textbooks, they shrank Africa 30 to five, 35 to 40 percent. Pangea theory is just pure baloney. Plus, if you look... Have you checked that out with geophysicists? Well, just let me finish. No, if you hold take it. The this water, is important. Well, if you're going to make these statements, the very least you've got to do... Always check it out. ...is go to the geophysicists sure. and say, give me your feedback. Have you talked to them? I taught her science for 15 years. Get, your, get, any, get any high school textbook, which is what I taught. Measure the size of the continents they show for Pangaea. Get a ratio, and then go measure it on a real globe. And you'll say, wow, how did they do that? Plus, all of Mexico, all of Central America is gone. They take them out. The shapes of the continents is a pure coincidence based on the water level. If you take the water out of the oceans, you will notice there is dirt underneath. These continents are not floating around like lily pads in a bathtub. They're connected. It's just the low places happen to be full of water. The opposite sides of most rivers are parallel with each other. That doesn't mean they broke apart millions of years ago. It's just a low place full of water. Well, that's, that's all. you stating it. I mean, again, check with the community of geophysicists and get their feedback. About they, what? About your plate tectonics theory. Is there I, I any agree. scientific support for your plate tectonics theory? I agree. The continents are moving a little bit. A little bit. That doesn't prove they're moving about as fast as your fingernails grow. Mm-hmm. Every as a professor of that subject that I know of would say, about as fast as your fingernails grow. Obviously, that doesn't prove they've always been moving at that rate. And just because South America and Africa are X number of miles apart, you're just judging by the water okay. level. Take the water out comment, and they're touching. Come here. Paul says everything must be tested. If you're going to sure. claim that plate tectonics was millions of times faster than the I days of I didn't claim that. Don't put those words Thousands? in my mouth. What no, I didn't say, say that either. Hundreds? I didn't, all I said was... The shapes of the continents only appear to fit because of the water level. Yes, the continents are moving, but they've only been moving 4,400 years since the flood of the days of Noah. How about during the flood? I don't know. The Bible says the fountains of the deep were broken open. There was probably some incredible continental movement during that flood. And how you can teach it was a local flood, I, I don't understand that. I mean, why would God tell Noah to build a boat, fill it full of animals, stay in there for a year? Tell Noah to move. I mean, I can figure that out. <laughs> it's a low, it was a worldwide flood. He could have told him to move, but the main, main purpose here is that God set up Noah to be a prophet. He says, build this gigantic boat in the desert and preach to this wicked generation. If he had moved, 
he would have lost his opportunity to preach. Do you really believe that? Yes, it says so in uh, <laughs> Hebrews and Peter. So the purpose of this ark was just to get attention. It was a... Uh God you know, always gives us Sunday to bring all the kids in. A pulpit. All right, we're gonna we're gonna we gotta get to that too. But gee, okay. we gotta get through the seven days here. Can I move on to day four? Because uh, this gets us into the light again. God said, "This is day four. Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth." And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. Question, did God make the sun? Did God make the stars on day four? Hugh? I'd say no. It's in the uh, CalPerfect form, which means that they were formed either on the fourth day, the third day, the second day, the first day, or in the beginning. Uh, go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the Shamayan arrest. That includes all the matter, energy, space, and time, stars, and galaxies. So that's when the light was. That's when the stars existed. And what you see there in the text is these are to serve for signs for the animals that are going to be created in the fifth and sixth days. You'll note that all the animals mentioned the fifth and sixth days are sufficiently complex. They need at least the occasional visibility of the sun, moon, and stars to regulate their biological clocks. Mm -hmm. This is uh, one that I actually uh, looked it up. And uh, the Hebrew verb, uh, verb is wayas in verse 16. And, and uh, according to Archer again, God had made the two great luminaries. Uh, this should be... Uh, Hebrew had no special form for the pluperfect tense, but uses the perfect tense, or the conversive imperfect is here to express mm -hmm. either the English past or the English perfect. So wh what he's saying is God had made two great lights, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, so that seems to open the door that the sun and uh, so on were already there. But it does say he also made the stars. Did he make stars on day four and didn't make them at the beginning? Well, it's in the same CalPerfect form, which means it could have been made any time in the past. Okay, Third, so he also had made the, the stars. Right. Kent? Well, I don't know Gleason Archer, and I know that an awful lot of the people in the past, uh, Schofield and Dakes for the Dake Study Bible, have, were products of their time. They were trying very hard to make the Bible say the earth is millions of years old because of the, in the early 1800s, some people started teaching the earth is millions of years old. Christians panicked and thought, wow, they're going to prove the Bible's wrong. We've got to somehow make the Bible say this. And so in the early 1800s, you see the gap theory, the day-age theory, progressive creation, uh, lots of these theories, which are just compromises. Uh, the earth is not millions of years old, for one thing. And why on earth should we compromise a perfectly good Bible, which has never been proven wrong, with a dumb theory of evolution, which has never been proven right? It's not evolution. Okay, your theory of Big Bang is exactly like Carl Sagan's. No, it isn't. Well, tell me the difference. Okay, the difference is this. Carl Sagan doesn't perceive design in the Big Bang. We do. In fact, we stipulate that the greatest scientific evidence for design in creation is in the Big Bang characteristics. And isn't that the opposite, though, of the second law of thermodynamics? Well, of course. We have God creating the universe. He's Why setting not? up the physics of the universe. Why not do it in six days like he said? Now, he did do it in six days like he said. Six literal long periods of time. Six literal long periods of time. Yes. So here you have day three, the plants living for millions of years without a visible, clearly visible sun. I'm saying the sun was always there. What was going on is the atmosphere from day one to day four was translucent. Light was coming through, 
but the observer on the surface of the earth. The Spirit of God is brooding over the surface of the waters. Uh, from that perspective, he couldn't make out the distinction of the sun, moon, and stars, only the light. It's like where I was raised in British Columbia. We got to see the sun maybe two days out of the year, because the rest of the time it's overcast. What you've got going on before the fourth day is where it's overcast all the time. Fourth day, we have the atmosphere becoming transparent for the first time, and now we can have God creating creatures that need these things for signs to regulate their clocks. Okay, I disagree. You're saying that the sun, the, the sun and moon were created. The word created and made are used interchangeably all through the scripture. I've got a list of about, I don't know, 50 or 60 places where they're used interchangeably. It means the same thing. He created and, and made. Scholars Genesis, don't agree with that. Well, so there is a distinction so between a saw and bara. Bara means you're talking about something that's really brand new. Mm -hmm. uh, when the text uses the verb a saw, it doesn't necessarily have to be brand new, but it does have to be something that's designed or manufactured by the creator. And I'm conceding that point. I believe that the Big Bang, the universe, the Earth, the solar system, our galaxy, were all very carefully fine-tuned and engineered by the Creator. Well, That's where I differ from Carl Sagan. This uh, brings up a great concern for me after reading lots and lots of your material. I, I really feel like I'm talking to a Mormon priest like you have a different God. It's not why? the same God. Why, why do you say that? Well, the Mormons will tell you they love God. Okay, who do you mean? Yeah, but the fact is... God. is, is, is is uh, he's saying, Mormons are saying there's many gods, okay? You can Maybe become a, a god, example. I can become oh. a god. Bible's not saying that. I don't hear you saying that. Are you no. saying that? Well, no. the God that I worship not only made it in six literal 24-hour days, he's not deceitful. He doesn't, we don't have to wait for somebody to come along in the 20th century to explain well, it to let's us. Let's talk about deceitfulness. Let's talk about that point. The fact is, that which is there, when the scientists find it, if it's not true, wouldn't that be deceitful? Oh, Yes. Right. And there's no conflict between the Bible and science. There's a conflict between the Bible and the Big Bang. No, and but I'm a saying is the, the fact is take, take the very thought of the fact of the light coming from the stars. Sure. Okay? Uh, we've got to talk about this. We'll do it in another program because we've got to shut this one down. But the fact is, is that if the light is not what the scientists are saying that it did from all the measurements, okay. then God had to create it in transit. Therefore, it's not really true. No, th that's a false assumption. You're setting up a straw man here. Uh, if the stars are billions of light years away, and they probably are, I wouldn't argue that. They probably go beyond what we've been able to see so far. You know, every time they look at a spot in space, they see more stars. You know, I don't know how far it goes. It probably goes forever, and that blows the human mind. You know, how can it go forever? Well, it doesn't uh, go we don't forever. Know. You know that it doesn't go forever. <laughs> Definitely, you've been we, there, done that. Yes, we've done <laughs> Extra that. Extraterrestrial perception. No, we can see far enough away in astronomy that we can look back to that epoch when stars you can didn't see even the, exist. You're, are you telling me and everybody and God's listening? that scientists have now observed the farthest star there is? Yes. Man, okay. Why, <clears throat> why, Hugh? Why are you saying that? What's the well, evidence? We have telescopes powerful enough to probe that far back in the history of the universe. In fact, one of the astronomers that volunteers for us, William Keel, at the University of Alabama, that's his research field, photographing the universe before galaxies exist, before stars exist, and showing the history of creation from that moment forward. All right, we're so, going yeah, we to wrap this images. up here in the facts. We're going to come back. And there's a couple things when we come back, uh, so please hang in there with us. All right. Anyone want to comment on what they just saw? Basically what I put down was um, Hute and Kent were talking about tectonics, and I want to know what are tectonics. Does it continue to be used by scientists today? 
Plate tectonic theory, if you guys studied it probably when you were doing some sort of uh, junior high or high school science, is the idea that all of the continental plates have defined borders. So if you think of them almost like on the crust of the Earth, it's broken up into different, different continents. Everybody remember this? Okay. Some tectonic theory proposes the idea that all of the plates were actually part of one landmass called Pangaea. And maybe you did this exercise when you were in high school where you cut out all the different continents and kind of glued them together and it looked like they actually kind of fit. There's a lot of debate about this and you can tell that Dr. Hoven does not like the theory. The point, though, that's being made by Dr. Ross, regardless of whether you believe in the Pangaea theory or not, that the continents were together, we do know that the continents are drifting apart or they're drifting into each other. And for example, in the San Andreas Fault, you have the North American plate and the Pacific plate moving into one another. That's what causes all the earthquakes along the San Andreas Fault. They're moving at each other at such I mean, you can imagine all of the North American plate and all of the Pacific plate, which basically goes underneath the Pacific Ocean all the way to Japan and the whole, you know, ring of fire. These two plates are moving at each other, and they're stuck, but every once in a while they move a little bit, and then we have a huge earthquake. You could have a tsunami. You could have anything like that along that place. The reason they're fighting about this is because Dr. Ross is saying, we know that they move, you know, they both agree they move very slowly, but... What Dr. Ross is saying is if we know, for example, that South America used to be next to Africa and it's moving the other way and they're both moving apart, you could just measure the distance, figure out how fast they're moving apart. If they're moving, let's say, an inch a year and you go back and measure the distance, that's a lot of years that they've been moving apart. Dr. Hoven completely rejects that and says, no, God created the earth exactly the way it is. Plate tectonics operates because... According to his flood theory, the water gushed out from underneath the crust of the earth, broke open the crust of the earth. So all the fault lines we have are not due to plate tectonics moving apart and banging into each other. They're based on the flood basically rupturing the earth's crust, and that's what fault lines are. Now, forget for a moment whether the Pangaea theory makes sense. Forget for a moment whether you could measure from Africa to South America and get a distance. What's more interesting is that Dr. Hoven seems to have made up this theory with his fellow colleagues, and no geologist on Earth, is what Dr. Ross was trying to point out, believes in this. No geologist has ever accepted an idea that first there was water underneath the Earth that caused these fault lines to occur, and more importantly, that plate tectonics is a result of floodwaters having broken through. Every geologist notices that the plates are actually moving. You know, you notice that Dr. Hoven said these aren't like lily pads in a bathtub. Actually, geologists think that's exactly what they're like. They're actually floating on, I'm not a geologist, but the magma of the crust or the magma of the, the next layer underneath the, cl the crust, okay? So on a, on a bed of like molten lava or whatever it is, the plates are actually moving. They're floating around. They've just bumped into each other in certain places. And the other thing that Dr. Ross pointed out is even if you don't believe in the distance between Africa and South America, for example, we know that mountain ranges have been created where the plates have crashed into each other and one is going up. And that's how mountain ranges are created. So if you measure how many millions of years it takes for those inches to go up and just get a mountain range, he's saying that by itself is proof that the Earth is millions of years old. So I guess the concept, if you're going to listen to what Dr. Hoven is saying, or at least what Dr. Ross is saying to him, if you're going to make up a new theory, it has to be put up to the scientific method. You remember in week two, we talked about what the scientific method was. You have to create a hypothesis that has a testable result. You know, you say, my hypothesis is this, and I've created a way of testing the hypothesis by predicting a certain result will occur. 
when the result occurs enough times and you've predicted it correctly, you put it up for scrutiny, people attack it all over the world, and after a while, if it really lives up to scrutiny, you might actually bump it up and call it a theory or maybe even a generally accepted theory. Sounds like Dr. Hovind's is kind of speaking. <laughs> I'm not really sure out of where, and I think that's what's kind of what really got Dr. Ross going a little bit was, like, where are you getting this? Like, who believes in this other than you? All right, other comment. Anyone? Who has, uh... there, was the, there was the discussion about um, water and what he was trying, what Dr. Hoven was trying to put across was that there is a layer of water that was just kind of hanging out there, okay? Now, we all know that layers of water do hang out there. And he was right when he said, you know, clouds are out there, they're full of water. But he was trying to stipulate that there was enough water to flood the entire earth out of it, you know? And what Dr. Ross was trying to point out to him was there's a limit to how much water the clouds hold before it all comes crashing down. And... You know, and so Dr. Hoven responds and says, well, he, he held it at that limit, whatever the limit was. None of us know what that limit is. And Dr. Ross says, I know what that limit is. You know, if you notice that, he said, I, I took that class. You know, I mean, I, we do know what that is. You know, like, you know, and again, he's really poking at what's your qualification? Who are you? You're a guy who has a PhD in education who, if you realize every time he says, I taught that subject, he taught it out of a high school textbook. And I mean, he doesn't even believe in the high school science books he was teaching out of. I'm sure his students were probably really confused. But the more important part of it, the more important part of it was to make a statement like, I mean, again, I'm thinking of this from the lawyer perspective. If he's in my courtroom and a guy like that makes an open-ended statement like, well, nobody knows how much water can be held up there, you know that guy is going down. Because at that moment, I'm bringing forward my expert on how much clouds can hold and putting him on the stand and saying, tell me the exact number. How do you know this? And he'll be drawing formulas and showing everybody just so that I can come back later and poke holes at this guy and say, you don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, you're saying no one knows? I, there's a whole school of science about this, you know? The other thing is, notice at the end here, what they're starting to talk about is God's deceitfulness. A very important point, because both of them come from the perspective that God is not deceitful. Yet, you could tell that even the moderator is starting to get a little annoyed <laughs> at the end there uh, with Dr. Hoven, and especially after the Mormon priest comment, you know. Because he starts to go after him about the deceitfulness. If God is consistent through and through, if he's not deceitful in any way, then when God puts the light in transit for billions of years, is that deceitful somehow? That's the question that was kind of left open. The other thing is a more important question, which I think Dr. Ross has always posed in every one of his books. If science discovers something about the universe, how could that contradict God in any way? The contradiction must be in our understanding. It can't be that God just didn't do those things. And remember, that's the whole basis of how we started analyzing our framework in CD number two. If you go back to it, our framework depends on your perspective. Dr. Hoven always begins with, we know what the Bible says. The God I worship is like this. He has a picture of him. It's an unchanging picture. So anything that contradicts that picture is false. Dr. Ross has a different view. Dr. Ross's view is God created the universe. God created his own word and gave it to us. The two are consistent. If there's any error between them, it's because we don't understand. And our interpretations may be off. You want to make a comment in here? He's making unfounded statements. And that's very frustrating in a debate, to just make unfounded statements. Anyone else? Comment? All right, let's move into the last segment that we'll probably watch tonight and uh, come back and take a look at where they're going next. Welcome. We're talking today with two guests, Dr. Hugh Ross, representing the Old Earth uh, point of view, the day-age creationist viewpoint, and Dr. Kent Hoven, 
representing the young Earth creationist viewpoint. Our topic is, are the universe and the Earth billions of years old or just 6,000 years old? Also, are Genesis 1 and 2 compatible with contemporary scientific evidence? And uh, this is a dynamite program right here because we're going to talk about what aspect, what part did evolution play in the origin of life, if any. We're going to talk about when, how did God create Adam and Eve. And we're going to talk about light and a few other things. And we're doing it in the, uh, uh, just going down the list here of uh, Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to combine two days here, guys, because uh, it's taken us a little longer than usual to get through these days. What happened on day 5 and day 6? Genesis 1.20 starts us with day 5. God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. God saw that was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. Day six, God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. It was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So it seems in these two days, you got to let the waters teem with living creatures, the birds fly across the earth, across the sky, above the earth, across the sky. He made the great creatures in the sea, then the livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, and finally man. All right? First of all, start me off, does evolution have any place in any of this? I would say no. Why? Uh, well, just by scientific modeling, we can determine that there is no possibility for a species changing into a distinctly different species unless it exceeds one quadrillion individuals with a body size less than one centimeter and a generation time uh, less than three months, which means it's going to work for viruses and bacteria, uh, but it's going to have no capacity to explain the uh, existence of new species of birds, mammals, uh, or any of the creatures we see from the Cambrian explosion onward. Some folks on PBS are doing specials on chaos theory, saying that that's the way it came about. What do you think? Uh, chaos theory, in my opinion, doesn't work. Uh, yes, you can get departures from thermodynamic equilibrium if you've got a complicated enough system and pick a small enough volume element in that system, uh, but there's an important corollary. The farther you depart a system from thermodynamic equilibrium, the faster it must snap back. As something as complex as a virus, the snapback time is less than 10 to the minus 120 seconds. Uh, so the fact that we're all older than that means that's not how we got here. So you're saying all the plants, all the animals, and man, none of that evolved? Uh, no evolution uh, beyond, you know, not the species level, the genus level, uh, order, family, none of that. Uh, unless the species happens to have more than a quadrillion individuals, which is only a few. Kent, you've offered $250,000 to anybody that could prove that theory. Give me some illustrations of why you think they never will. Well, all we've ever observed is dogs produce dogs. Nobody's ever seen a dog come from a non-dog. Now, they might want to believe that a dog and a banana have a common ancestor. Well, I don't care what they believe, but that's not science. And I certainly resent my tax dollars going to support that. 
Uh, you need to get a King James, brother, by the way, because uh, you said wild animals. The Bible doesn't say that. They weren't wild. They were all tame, all friendly animals uh, in, the, in the original creation. They were all part of, you know, Adam, Adam got to pet them all when he went out for a walk. And the animals were all created on one literal day, the, the sixth day. And then Adam and Eve were both made on the sixth day. It wasn't a long period of time between Adam and Eve like Dr. Ross believes. It was the same day. And there's, uh, you know, the God that I worship is able to do it right. And he's able to do it in, in a few seconds. Okay, you but know? you're saying that God could. Is there any benefit of God doing it quicker than six 24-hour days? In other well, words, if, if that yeah. shows his power, why not do it in two nanoseconds and really show off? Why do you say that he, had, he couldn't have done it longer? Oh, he in other words, when a painter sure. paints his picture, I understand. Okay, he can take his time in doing whatever he wants. He's the creator. Right. Is there anything better about saying he did it you know, over 10 billion years of, of age, two nanoseconds, or six 24-hour days? Is there some spiritual quality that adheres to that? Well, I, the only reason I can see for God taking six days, he could have done it in zero time. He doesn't need any time at all, you know, and could have made it perfect and right. And God doesn't need 17 billion years to get the stars just right to support life for this brief times period like Dr. Ross teaches in his books. My God did it right in six days, just like he said. We have a, a solar reason that we have a year. You know, we go around the sun once a year. We have a lunar reason that we have a month. You know, it used to be the month was about the same time as the lunar cycle. There's no, nobody knows why we have a seven-day week. There's no, you know, what's the historical reason? Why, why does every culture have a seven-day week? Napoleon tried to change it to a ten-day week, and it was disaster. Uh, we're just kind of built with our biological clock to work six days and rest one. And it's normal days. Uh, God wasn't telling the Jews to work six million years and then rest or work 6,000 years and then rest. He told I think them to the work the agricultural land six years, though. And yeah, rest I think the seven-day week is established be because of the creation. And the uh, biological clock is just a normal... God just did it that way just so we'd have... And I also think that God um, created... It says in uh, Genesis 1 that he made, God said, let us make man in our image. The very next verse says, so God created man. Here you've got an example where created and made means the same thing. I don't think so. I think the making is referring to the fact that we have a physical component to us, which previously existed. Um, wait, wait, wait. Previously existed. Do you, do you believe Adam was literally made from dust and God breathed into his nostrils? Definitely. And Eve was literally made from a rib. Uh, no, it's side of Adam. It doesn't say rib in the text. It says a portion of Adam's side. So we don't really know what kind of biopsy God took out of Adam. But you believe this literally took place? Yes. Well, we finally agree on something. There's one. Okay. 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 So we believe that God uh, made Adam. Now, let's, let's, what are the tip-offs of when? We also have uh, bipedal hominids going around, uh, it seems, from anthropologists that go back past what the Bible says in terms of the genealogies that are given. Sure. Okay, let's talk about that. How far back do you think the genealogies take us in Genesis? Usher said it was 4,000 years. B.C. B.C. Right. Well, the Hebrew scholars I talked to said there's obvious gaps in the genealogies. You can't fix a precise date like Archbishop Usher did who assumed no gaps. But there's also a... a but there's a limit. There's, there's a, a limit. limit. Yeah, I would be hard-pressed to push it any earlier than, say, 50, 60,000 years. Mm -hmm. i got friends who try to push it back as far as 100,000. Anything beyond that, I think, is right. illegitimate. So the fact is, is that both you and Kent are in trouble as far as the anthropologists who want to take some of these other bipedal primates uh, or, or hominids back 
to oh, what is it, a million years? Yeah, million if you five? interpret the bipedals as human, then you've got a problem. All right, so what do you guys do with them? They're not human. Why aren't they human? Uh, they're just like the primates. They're like the uh, chimpanzees, orangutans, uh, gorillas. You include Neanderthals as being in this category? They're in that category, too. Yeah, I disagree. Why? The Neanderthals were deformed humans, probably post-flood. Uh, they were still they were burying people after they died. If a person lives past 100 years, uh, there's a disease called acromegaly where the pituitary gland keeps secreting growth hormones. Your ears get longer, your nose gets bigger, and your bones in your forehead get thicker. The Neanderthals were simply uh, post-flood humans who were deformed from diseases, arthritis, rickets. Kent, are you aware that they have enormous nasal capacities and that their DNA is radically different from human DNA? Well, no, that's deceitful to say it's radically different. It's about 4% different, and it's within the range that's of humans huge. today. You could go downtown, go downtown Los Angeles and line up people and make an exact same chart like they've got in your textbook with the skulls sloping, different diseases, and bone, noses larger, nasal capacities larger. No. They're still human. No, no. Okay, you can read a paper. I got the paper here. It's by Ian Tattersall and Jeffrey Schwartz. And they examined 13 Neanderthal skulls, complete skulls, and discovered that the nasal capacity was so enormous they could it, smell eliminated, fine. it eliminated the possibility that Neanderthal was biologically linked to any other land mammal species, not just primates. They said, we've got a problem here. We've got this Neanderthal that we can't link with anything. You're saying just because their nose is bigger, they're not linked to anything. It's not, not the nose. It's the entire nasal capacity. Sure. If they have a nasal capacity is so huge, mm -hmm. there's really no... And these guys are atheists. They're saying, now, how can we possibly evolve this gigantic nasal capacity from many other species we see in the fossil record or any other species we see on Earth? And they said, we can't, we can't come up with I would agree. It. Nothing evolves beyond... I wouldn't use the word species, that's kind of a nebulous term, because a dog and a wolf and a coyote are different species. But they're still interfertile. They're the same kind. I'd stick with what the Bible says. The animals bring forth after their kind. A horse and a How zebra. How do you interpret kind? Do you think horses and zebras evolve? I think horses another? and zebras are the same kind. I interpret kind like the Bible says. They're able to bring forth. The ones that were originally able to reproduce are the created kinds. Now, there's been variations from there. So how far up do you put the kinds? I mean, I just don't know what your I don't know that anybody is. knows that, and that would be a good field of research for science to get into. You would know? you be willing to take a past genera? I think with, with some areas, now see, what we have here is we're trying to take a modern 20th century classification system. You know, started with Carolus Linnaeus, has been refined many times, and we're trying to force that onto the Bible. Now, that's the mistake. Just the Bible says they bring forth after their kind. A horse and a zebra probably are the original created kind. Uh, one of the zoos in, uh, I believe it was one in Hawaii, they had a walpin. They crossed a killer whale and a dolphin. They have their, many zoos have had a, a tigon or a liger cross a, ti a tiger and a lion. They probably are the original created kind. Yes, but they can't reproduce that kind. Well, the walpin, uh, the, the, the walpin did. It, after 10 years, it, it produced a baby. But not the liger. I don't know about the liger. See, yeah. but even if they get where they or can't reproduce... Or, but, well, but, one but, in but you guys are you're arguing able. intramurally, and the big argument is from the outside. Does the fossil record support the evolutionists or not? I don't. I never Plants, got, animals, man. Yeah, I never got a chance to respond to the caveman. I don't think. But uh, well, I mean, let's let's stick with the outside world here for a moment. Okay. And the fact is, those folks out there are simply saying both you guys are wrong. The fact is, evolution did did, did take place. But uh, I think most of our students recognize that even people like Gould at Harvard are making a shift here. 
punctuated equilibrium is really uh, uh, going against what they originally started out with. All of a sudden, it just appears in the record. What comment on this, please? Well, it's an excellent point because what Gould and Niles Eldridge are trying to do is make evolution work where the mathematics tells us it is the lowest possible probability. I mean, when the species population drops down to a few thousand, you get a zero probability of evolutionary advance. When you look at the fossil record, where do you see the evidence for the so-called uh, um, transitional forms? There's creatures like whales and horses. And these are creatures with population levels so small, generation time so long, body sizes so huge, they have a zero probability for evolutionary advance. They're even lower than our probability for evolutionary advance. Yet we see these, all these transitions. My explanation for that? God loves horses and whales. He knows because of their huge size and small populations, they're going to go extinct rapidly. When, he do, that, when they do, he makes new ones. When you guys are on campus, what do you say to the, to the kids that have grown up thinking that evolution is proven by the fossil record? What, what are the things that you use? Give them a mathematical model. I mean, one of the things we're trying to do in uh, university campuses is say, if you're going to work in this discipline, you have to integrate mathematics with biology. Here's the principle. Uh, most mutations, or many more mutations, are negative than those that are beneficial. The best you get is a ratio of 10,000 to 1. In other words, mutations will tend to drive a species to extinction before it has an opportunity to naturally evolve, unless it has a truly enormous population size, more than a quadrillion, a body size less than one centimeter, and a generation time briefer than three months. Now you can go to the field biologists. Where do you see speciation going on in the real world? They only see it for those species that match the mathematical limits. Those that don't, all they see are extinctions. Right. And you've got some great illustrations on DNA, too, Kent, in terms of people say, well, the DNA is similar between this and that. Therefore, they, have, they call that the transitional forms. But uh, talk to that a little bit. Well, um, he mentioned about God loves horses and whales, so when they go extinct, God creates new ones. This is the type of thing that makes me so nervous about uh, people following his teachings because there are so many things like this thrown in there that just are simply unsupported by Scripture. Psalm Bible, 104. The Bible says God finished his creation. He was finished. I don't think God's creating new species all the time. I think it was done. And when he looked at it, it was very good. By the way, I good. agree. God has stopped creating new species when he created Eve. That's when he went into his period of rest. And how long ago was that? Uh, I would argue that it's probably the neighborhood of thirty to 40,000 years ago. Okay, we could argue that for a long time, but I think it was 6,000 years ago, just like the Bible obviously teaches. But you're both using genealogies to say there's an end in terms of the parameters. So you're both basically on the same point at that spot that God stopped. So you're saying that this, this uh, origination of uh, new whales, new horses, and so on was before that. It was before that, correct. Okay. Just like Psalm 104 but, speaks. But come back, please, because uh, we only got about two minutes here, and that's this thing of the DNA. Because the kids hear this a whole lot in terms of there's similarity in DNA, so therefore a man is similar to this, that, and the other. And they use that as kind of a transitional right. deal. The reason DNA is similar in so many different animals is we all have the same designer. Microsoft Word and Microsoft PowerPoint have millions of similarities. That doesn't prove they both evolved from Morse code. The same guys are writing the programs, that's all. And the same God designed the DNA of all the animals. And the DNA is incredibly flexible. There's a wide range of humans. There's a wide range of dogs. You get Great Danes and Chihuahuas. And they probably had a common ancestor. It was a dog. That doesn't prove a dog and a banana are related. So the DNA code is just so, so incredible. 
must be an incredibly smart designer. Take a moment. Can you remember some of the numbers on some things that just show the dissimilarity? There's no transitional forms going up. Oh, I've got a chart on my website, drdino.com. People can look at, you know, penicillin only has two chromosomes. So that must have evolved first, you know, and then fruit flies have eight. So they must be the next form, you know. Now, a house fly and a tomato both have 12 chromosomes. So obviously they're identical twins. I mean, it's hard to tell the difference between a house fly and a tomato, you know. Uh, a, a, a possum, a redwood tree, and a kidney bean all have 22 chromosomes. Identical triplets, you know. Possum, redwood tree, kidney bean, average scientist can't tell them apart, you know. Uh, they have, uh, monkeys, or chimpanzees, have more chromosomes than we do. Man has 46. Tobacco has 48. So if we keep evolving, we're all going to be a tobacco plant. I mean, the whole idea is absurd, and how they believe this, I don't know. But they just don't like the idea that God created the world. Okay. It's obvious he did. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, what happened when Adam sinned. Was there uh, death in the world before Adam sinned? And did the law of entropy only take place when Adam sinned, or was it in place before that? All right, because it has a bearing on whether God created in 24 hours or God created over long periods of time. So stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. They're in agreement about evolution does not explain it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Eric asked about this specific point, and tonight they got into it a little bit uh, better, but you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about mathematically they have not been able to prove evolution is possible. Tonight, what Dr. Ross was talking about is he was kind of reversing it, but what, what it really basically comes down to is for, for evolution to have produced complex life forms like humans, you would need a quadrillion uh, people in the species and you need to have all those other elements that he had to make it mathematically possible, we still only have six or seven billion. We haven't even reached it. And that would have meant that we had to have to, back then, second law of thermodynamics? Yeah. Okay. The second law of thermodynamics is the law that basically says that matter, I'm, I'm going to misstate it, but basically the outcome of the second law of thermodynamics is that matter breaks down into energy. Okay. And that things go from order to disorder, so you have entropy or decay. They use this a lot. Young Earth creationists like this a lot because they think that, and actually old Earth creationists use it too when they fight evolution. Evolution wants us to believe, the evolutionary theory states that we went from a single cell organism that mutated enough times to become a complex species. Notice Dr. Ross's statements that we know that mutations, only one in 10,000 tend to help the species. All the others drive the species into extinction. So they both use the second law of thermodynamics against evolution to say it's just inconceivable that you could have species going from less complex to complex because we know that things actually go from complex, breaking down into energy or entropy or decay. They go the other way. Last week, though, they both use the same second law of thermodynamics in different ways. Notice here's where the difference between them is. Dr. Hoven doesn't like the Big Bang Theory because he says the second law of thermodynamics would be violated. You have a single bang that produces an entire universe. And that can't be 
because it should go the other way. You should have a universe already constructed going to nothing if you're going to have anything. Dr. Ross's comment from the old earth perspective is that that's part of God's design. God designed that, that bang that occurred was his creation, his instantaneous creation event that was going to create all this at the same time. Okay. So there is a difference between them on the second law of thermodynamics, but when they come to fighting evolution, it's the number one reason a lot of people cite for it. Just logically, it can't make sense that you would go from simple to complex unless there was some, some design or drive behind it. Um, I was confused. They kept talking about um, the made and the created, and Hoven didn't agree that he thought they were the same thing, and Doctor, I didn't understand what they were talking about. They're dealing with different words in Hebrew, okay? Um, they're dealing with different verb tenses, all right? And this is a very important point because Dr. Hoven is saying that God made, God created, it's all the same word. Well, it's all the same word in English, but it's a very different meaning in Hebrew. And Dr. Ross is always going back, and they're citing again Gleason Archer, who's this you know, world-famous scholar, probably the most respected scholar on Hebrew, who seems to support the old earth creationist by saying there is a distinction between the two words, that when God bara creates immediately, that's one thing, and he only uses really that tense according to Dr. Ross in Genesis 1-1 where he says he created everything, you know, all the matter, time, space, okay? But that every other time you see the words let there be, and those are really a translation, and, and those kind of other words where he made are a translation of things that were made but does not mean that they were made at that time. They were made at some point in the past, including the possibility of that time. So they're debating the sun, for example. When it said he made the one to rule the night and one to rule the day, so is he making the sun on day four? Because if you're making the sun on day four, how the, how the, you know, how's anything going on without the sun? Dr. Ross is saying, no way. The sun was made in Genesis 1-1 along with everything else in the universe. But when, he, when they get to you know, the fourth day, he's saying it was made at some point in the past, and now it's appearing for the first time. So in other words, it's always existed, it's just not appearing. Very subtle thing he said that you probably missed. He was talking about the spirit brooding over the water. Did you catch that? The reason he's talking about it is because Dr. Ross's view is that Genesis is written from the point of view of the spirit of God hovering over the water. So when he says the reason we can't see the sun until day four is the spirit is brooding over the water. And it's describing to Moses as he writes what the spirit was seeing going on on earth, not what God was doing in the creation of the heavens, okay? And this is, again, a clue right from the beginning, opening pages of the Bible, how the Trinity operates. There's three persons of God. He's, and a lot of scholars point to this as the first instance of the Spirit appearing, is now the Spirit is brooding over the water. And that's why he said that it appears to the Spirit that the Son finally comes in on day four. Now, you know, we could debate that because we say the Spirit should have perfect knowledge the way God does. But this is just, he's not saying the Spirit doesn't know. What he's saying is that's the perspective it's being written from. Okay, let's go back to Justin for a second. Why would they argue about the Neanderthal? Because most people who find the fossilized records of Neanderthal, well, first of all, if you step outside of the Christian debate, scientists find these bones. We go back to our discussion about radiometric dating, and they date these bones to pre-exist mankind the way we know him. Mankind is human being created by God sometimes by hundreds of thousands of years. Dr. Ross, and whether you believe Dr. Ross or Dr. Hoven, mankind is at most 30, 40, 50,000 years old, okay? Obviously, 
Dr. Hoven thinks it's six. Whoa. But Neanderthal is way out of that range. So what they're both trying to grapple with is, is he even human, the Neanderthal? Okay. And notice it's an interesting point because if someday you perfected dating, radiometric dating, and perfected it, Dr. Hoven has already staked his claim that Neanderthal is a human being post-flood, so in other words, it must be in the last 5,000 years or so, and it's because he has this disease that he starts looking disfigured, and that's what a Neanderthal is. Okay? And imagine if you could accurately date it, and suddenly it's 400,000 years ago. Now he's got a major problem. He's already staked his claim on something, and he said it with like absolute certainty. Dr. Ross is trying to explain to him, it's not human. And caveman, as they call her, any kind of bipedal or kind of looking like something that looked human has been a large reason why people thought evolution was natural theory to adopt because you have these things that look human that increasingly all of a sudden then we appear. Okay? And what Dr. Ross is saying is, first of all, they're not human. They're like any kind of primate. They're just another animal that God created. They're another species that God created, whether you call them animal or whatever you want to call them. They're probably animal. They're not human. And we can tell that they're not related. And of course, I like what he does. He cites a secular study that secular biologists and anthropologists have researched this and figured out that, he, that Neanderthal is not related to anything. So science has a problem because they want to link it to something, link it to humans, link it to the chimpanzee, link it to something. They can't. But at least he's citing a very good scientific study where he's taking, saying, look, these guys are knowledgeable in their field. They're admitting they don't know. But they know for sure it's not related to any species and any mammal they know, so that means, ergo, it's not related to mankind. Yeah. But that's why they're dealing with Neanderthal at all, because if you're a, even if you're an old Earth creationist and you accept Neanderthal as human of some kind or caveman, then you're putting mankind's you know, appearance on the Earth at like way before probably Adam and Eve were created by God. Okay. Here's, what's, here's what an old Earth creationist will tell you. In Genesis 1-1, you have the Big Bang event that over billions of years or whatever it is, you know, in, is in this instant begins and starts to go for, for a long, long period of time. The whole universe is created. That includes our sun, okay? And that includes our solar system, our earth. Then you now begin Genesis as an account of the creation of what's going on on earth. The light is already there, probably from the sun and, you know, maybe from whatever else is going on in the universe. But we know that in our solar system, our sun is our primary source of light. Okay. It is overcast around the Earth. Okay. The plants, by the way, this is one of the things the young Earth criticize. They say, you know, if you have the plants appearing on day three, but you don't have the sun till day four, how is that going on? How is there any photosynthesis happening on the Earth? But that's what they're saying, that he talks about this atmosphere being translucent and transparent. Translucent means you can go to the beach any day that's overcast, and you'll come back burned. In fact, sometimes you come back even more burned than when the sun's going up, because the UV rays and all those other things that are there to sustain life and to burn you are going through. You just can't see the sun that's doing it to you. By the fourth day, when it says, let there be... What he's saying is at that point, the sun that's already existed and all these millions of years that are going through each of these daily time periods, okay, these day periods or these day, you know, literal day periods, whatever they call them, by the time you get to the fourth era where God is now going to allow the translucent to become transparent so you can actually see the sun and the stars, now you can actually see through it. And he actually says why he believes now suddenly you need to see it. The plants don't need to see it, but animals do. He believes that for animals to regulate their biological clocks, and I'm sure this is based on some scientific theory about how you know, our biological clocks work, you have to orient yourself to night and day and be able to you know, see the sun and the moon and know where you are. So he's saying that 
day four is really getting ready for day five. That, you know, when you say let's have stars and let there be sun and moon, what you're saying is something that's been created in the past, let us now see it. It's now appearing so that we can get ready for day five to have the first biological creatures on earth that do need to see it, not like the plants who can just exist there. So where are we? (laughs) We had a whole other disc to go through this stuff. I wanted to make a couple observations real briefly for you myself. Did you guys notice when when, uh, Dr. Hovind said, get me a King James Bible? Did you notice that in the thing? You know, he obviously he prefers the uh, version that was written in 1600 and something, you know, where they didn't have all of the manuscripts so he can get his words right. I, I just noticed that among a lot of young earth or just fundamentalist type movements that they liked the King James because it was translated a certain way. Whether it's translated more correctly or less correctly, it just goes back to my theory that there are people who are stuck in their interpretation and that's it. That these newfangled interpretations that attempt to even try to explain away other things not going to work. So that was just an interesting comment. He showed his colors really clearly. He's like, show me a King James Bible. You know, that's the true word of God. Everything else, that's just baloney. You realize that they're starting to agree on some points, but there was one thing that we didn't talk about much before that they, they disagree on. I'm going to leave it, but I just want to highlight it for you. Young Earth and Old Earth creationists disagree vehemently over whether the flood occurred in a local flood or an entire worldwide flood. Okay. The old earth creationists usually say that the flood was localized to the Mesopotamian Mesopotamian, uh, peninsula or the area, that whole basin, and that it wiped out all of mankind. So both young earth and old earth, they agree that the result was the same. But old earth creationists have a hard time justifying through scientific numbers how there could be enough water on the earth to flood the entire earth. That's why you have the young earth creationists talking about these fountains of the deep and all these other things where water is coming from somewhere other than the water cycle. To me, it really doesn't matter much until you get into how they use the flood, and they'll talk about that, I hope, in the next DVD a little bit more. Because the flood explains a lot of how we got fossils and how we got sedimentary rock. The young earth will tell you that a flood that covered the entire earth had contained so much water and was so heavy, it altered the earth and made it look older. It, you know, made fossil fuels and all these kind of things, whereas the old earth is saying, that's silly, that just happened over billions of years. Okay, so that's the reason they fight about the flood, just in case you guys wanted to know. Any last comments, questions, anything? Do fossils have to be made over billions of years? Well, I wouldn't say billions of years, but the thing is, you either have to take a couple of different views. You either have to say that God put the fossils in the ground to trick us, which is back to the conceit idea, that he's, he's, um, you know, he's trying to de- deceive us somehow. Okay, Or... You take the flood theory, which is that there were some types of animals lying around, but that, you know, God used so much water in the flood that he actually made them look really old and they're fossilized. Another theory is just that these animals were real, but they existed during Noah's time. So a lot of young earth creationists today, after they've given up trying to claim the dinosaur uh, didn't exist, I mean, for a long time, they were just like, God put those in the ground to fool us. You know, that's how he shames the wise is by having these dinosaur fossils. Now, there actually are whole doctrines and books, and I have one if you want to look at it, that try to explain how Noah took the brontosaurus and the tyrannosaurus rex on the ark with him. So that all of the dinosaurs were created on the fifth day along with all the other animals, and they were put on the ark so that when Noah was off the ark, along with the lions, tigers, and bears, and everybody else that was in the Wizard of Oz, here come the dinosaurs as well. 
and then they died, and of course they were fossilized. But just that, it's inconceivable to me that nobody in the world would write about these animals walking around, you know, it's just like, I mean, you know, it's just kind of nuts, but that's actually how. So then you take the old earth view, which is that God was creating animals for millions of years in the fifth day. And that some of them were dinosaurs, some of them were the mammoths, you know, and you know things would died out during those millions of years that he was creating animals. One thing I'd like to comment about time in general, though, just for you guys to remember, is that you guys know Stephen Hawking. He's probably one of the most famous uh, secular scientists. Actually, just let's take the word secular out. He's just one of the most famous scientists around, and he took Einstein's theories of relativity and pushed them even further forward. The guy is just an absolute brilliant genius. Uh, by the way, Stephen Hawking and Dr. Ross have debated before on campuses, you know, and they are contemporaries of one another. Um, and so just so you get an idea of where Dr. Ross's intelligence is. But let's just put Stephen Hawking as the foremost authority on all these things. Stephen Hawking's own theories about relativity and space-time basically tell you that there are 10 dimensions of time and you have all the things, and, and, and Dr. Ross alluded to this in the first time, that there is an event. The Big Bang occurs, and part of the thing that occurs during the Big Bang is time is one of the dimensions. So Stephen Hawking, independently of any theological basis, I mean, the guy's an atheist, has always postulated that something must exist outside of time. Okay, and of course, Christians adopt the same view that God is not bound by time. So when we talk about a creator who is taking his time, I think it's a nice way to look at it. But if we're going to be really theologically accurate, you have to understand that God is outside of time. He's the only thing that's outside of time. The entire creation is subject to time. All of matter in the universe, all of us are subject to time. But God could be at any point in time at the same moment. I mean, he's outside of the plane of time. So when we're talking about a comment like Dr. Hoven keeps making about, well, the God I believe in doesn't need 17 billion years, his God that he's describing can be in all seconds of that 17 billion years at the same moment. He is outside the, the confines of time. So it's silly in a way to even be arguing over six days or 17 billion years because God is not bound by time. And that's why it really leads me to conclude that when you're writing this book to the Hebrews who are marching through the desert 5,000 years before Darwinian theories are even going to start appearing, and we're going to understand Renaissance and forward, the kinds of science that we discover, to them it's sufficient that you tell them in the first day and the second day and the third day and the fourth day, especially when day has multiple meanings, and let's not boggle their mind with it because they're never going to understand it. Because even in the 21st century where we think we understand time, we're being told that there are 10 different dimensions of time and 10 different dimensions of space and those kind of things, and that God is outside of them. And even secular guys believe that something is outside of them, even if they won't call him God. So even we don't understand it. And to have guys debating over six days or 17 billion years is a little silly because it means that, they're, that our God is so much bigger than both of them. Our God is so much bigger that time means nothing, you know? So just a thought to kind of close with, that that's the kind of God that we have. And that someday I think it, you know, we'll kind of appreciate that when we're with him. I just, oh man, I really want to live next door to Dr. Hoven when I'm in heaven, you know? Because no doubt he's going to go to heaven. The guy's a faithful guy. You know, these are not requirements to go to heaven. This is, you know, high-level stuff for after you're part of the chosen, you know, you can start debating this stuff. But, you know, I just... <laughs> Love to go over to that guy's house and go, well, now what do you think? (laughs) 
you know? Maybe he'll be over at my house telling me the same thing. Who knows? <laughs>